For this series, I create, present, and aggregate historical content for all to enjoy. When aggregating relevant materials, I peruse the many sources to identify what might be interesting to share with you. In the case of a pertinent audio recording, I listen to it many times before editing to fit my style and hopefully satisfy my audience. When I do turn to outside sources, I always provide attribution info during the program or in the show notes. Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. Let's pause our series narrative to ask, Is it important to study history? Why do we need to know what's come before us? Isn't it enough to just live in the moment? Let's explore these important questions with renowned historian Victor Davis Hanson. Why study history? Ironically, this question is as old as history. 2,500 years ago, Thucydides, the great chronicler of the Peloponnesian Wars between Athens and Sparta, and the man many call the first historian, said that, I have written my work not to win the applause of the moment, but as a possession for all time. Thucydides hoped that what he was writing would help future generations understand what transpired in his day. If they could learn from it and make better decisions, his efforts would not be in vain. More than two millennia later, the American social thinker, George Santayana, said much the same thing. Those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. But while knowledge of the past is a prerequisite to wisdom, it doesn't give the historian a crystal ball. We must be modest in our claim. Studying history provides an invaluable guide, but only a guide, to current and future political, economic, military, and cultural challenges. Just as it is dangerous to be ignorant of past events, so too is equally risky to assume that history across time and space will repeat itself in exactly the same fashion. It never does. Still, with a proper caution, studying history can warn us of dangers ahead. For example, across the ages, appeasing or ignoring enemies has rarely proven to be a prudent strategy. Usually it's disastrous. The Greek city-state's coddling of the Macedonian king Philip II, the weak Western democracy's reaction to the aggression of Adolf Hitler in the 1930s, and the indifference shown to the dangers of radical Islam by an affluent West in the 1990s make this point. There is another perhaps less recognized value in studying history. Every generation, none more than our own, suffers from a pernicious presentism the arrogance that those now alive have created the most prosperous period in history. The result is that too often we judge a materially poorer past by the same contemporary standards of an affluent and leisured present. Those who study history can avoid these fallacies. Aside from the fact that the present is the beneficiary of the accumulated intellectual, moral, and scientific contributions of the past, proper knowledge of the hardship of prior ages teaches us the value of humility. To take just one possible example, it might be an easy thing to chronicle what seems to us prejudices recorded among the wagoneers on the Oregon Trail in the 1840s. It is quite another to imagine how the trailblazers struggled to survive one more day in an age without effective medicines, labor-saving machines, or adequate shelter. Studying history also confers much-needed perspective. It's neither fair nor wise to attempt to apply the moral standards of today to, say, the far more deadly 17th century 
when life, in the words of English philosopher Thomas Hobbes, was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. The COVID-19 pandemic seems to many like a public health crisis without precedent until we take time to learn of the global outbreak of the H1N1 influenza virus in 1918. The Spanish flu killed nearly 600,000 Americans in a nation of 100 million, with a worldwide toll of perhaps 50 million dead. And yet our nation and planet survived and learned from it. One of the ways that I used to endure the tedium, dust, and noise of tractor driving was to remember that my farming grandfather covered the same ground with a team of horses. It took him two days of backbreaking labor to cultivate four acres of land. I could do it in an hour, sitting down. But while technology improves, human nature does not. That means we have, if we bother to look, a timeless connection to those who went before us. Their struggle to make sense of life is our struggle. In this regard, there's still much to learn from King David, the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius, or Elizabeth I, and we can draw strength and courage when all seems lost from inspirational figures like George Washington, Frederick Douglass, or the Wright brothers. Finally, the study of history teaches to value caution over certainty. We should avoid making judgments about who's good and who's bad as if we were watching a morality tale in the present. Major historical players like Julius Caesar, Robert E. Lee, and Napoleon were complex men who at points in their lives did some good things. That these efforts ultimately led to bad outcomes made far worse by their own outsized talents is one of the many tragedies of history. So why study history? Nobel Prize-winning American novelist William Faulkner summed it up as well as anyone. The past is not dead. In fact, it's not even past. In the 14th and 15th and 16th centuries, the nexus of power in Europe shifted from the traditional Mediterranean, Greece, and Rome centers to Northern Europe and Scandinavia and the Atlantic coast. And that it transferred for a lot of reasons. One is the Ottomans took Constantinople in 1453 and they pressed into what had been the Byzantine bulwark and that was lost. So people in the Mediterranean were panicked. So people started to explore ways of getting to India and China. They couldn't use the land routes when the Byzantines had protected them and they no longer were there. So we had the great age in the 15th and 16th century of exploration. And any country with an Atlantic port, they could go to China or then later the New World, whether that was France or Spain or Britain or the Dutch, prospered. And anybody who was locked in the Mediterranean, whether that were the old Florentine Republic or the Papal States or Venice, suffered. So the Ottomans made a difference. So did the discovery of global navigation by sea in the New World. And also it was the rise of the Protestant Reformation, and that gave a new economic explanation of Christianity. So if you are going to be wealthy, I'm just trying to be caricaturing Calvinism a little bit, but a person who was successful and wealthy was no longer the problem of a rich man getting to heaven is harder than a camel going through the eye of a needle. He must have been blessed by God to be so industrious. So that Protestant work ethic, that started in the Protestant Reformation was centered in Northern Europe. The classical legacy then was appropriated or absorbed by these new dynamic places in Britain, in France, in the Netherlands, in Germany, in Sweden. And they made the idea that this culture that they had taken from Italy and Greece, and what is that culture? It's rationalism. 
the scientific method. It's private property. It's basically pre-capitalist economics. It's tolerance. All of that then became absorbed into the larger European tradition. And those people, at certain times when they started to leave the European continent, also embedded in the classical tradition was the Socratic method of induction. It was self-criticism. It was self-reflection. When you look at classical literature, what do you find? Thucydides, an Athenian general, does he write an Athenian propaganda take on the Peloponnesian War? No, he's very, very critical of Athens. What do you read when you read Petronius' the Satyricon? A devastating takedown on the decadence that affluence and leisure contribute to in the late empire. If you read a poem of Catullus, is it celebratory of the late Roman Republic? No, it's about the decadence of self-centered, selfish, sexually obsessed men. And so what I'm getting at, it was a very self-critical culture. And the same was true about race and the same was true about democracy. So for every racist, there was an anti-racist. For every Democrat, there was an anti-Democrat. And that's why we're so self-critical in the West in a way that China is not. That's why we're saying today we want to be transparent. So then the question is, well, since classics was sort of centered on tracing the classical legacy in Greece and Rome, and that required a lot of disciplines that were very difficult, archaeology, epigraphy, the study of text on stone, art, philosophy, philology was the key to it, because to study these things in depth, you have to know Greek and Latin, because a lot of these texts are not quite the same in English. You don't get a sense of the language or the vocabulary usage or the history of the language or the style of the language if you're reading it in English. The only culture in the Mediterranean that had free expression and had literature that was divorced from religion and state. History is just the word that Herodotus used for inquiry, and you were going to learn about the past. And it was the view of the founders of history, and Thucydides in particular, but also Herodotus, that great men made history. So when you read Thucydides' history, it's an encomium in the second book to Pericles, for example. Without Pericles, a lot of the things that Athens did are inexplicable, or with his absence, they become explicable. And that was true of Xenophon and his scourge Hellenica. That was the story, really, of Agesilaus. And it's the story of Herodotus. He focuses on people like Themistocles or Miltiades or Darius or Xerxes as individuals that make a difference. That was pretty much when Plutarch wrote his great lives of illustrious men and comparative lives at the end, Greek and Roman. It was that idea that individuals that are extraordinary, not in the sense of better, but have more clout, more influence. And that was pretty much the reigning idea. I guess the epitome of that was Thomas Carlyle, the Scottish historian that wrote about the heroes of history. And then Marx came along and people said, no, real point is class struggle and equity and equality. And these are mass movements. And the individual then sort of was shunned aside because he was unimportant. And it was not just a way of reducing history to themes or movements, but it was also predetermining it, that these mass waves made it impossible for one individual to, as William Buckley said, stand athwart history and say, stop. You couldn't do it anymore. And that really permeated every type of history that it was all about technology. It was, it was predetermined. I'm Victor Davis Hansen, Senior Historian at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. Next time, we explore England's great age of North American discovery during the Tudor period, known as the Elizabethan Age.
Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. I'm Mark Vinette, and I hope you're enjoying the ride.